Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Book Club Appetizer, the snackable podcast where we talk about great books we think you or your book club would love. And we interview the authors over a special cocktail and appetizer that we've paired with each read. I'm your host, Abby. And I'm Emma. Thanks to all of you who tuned in to last month's episode with YA author Nicola Yoon. Right after our podcast aired, we learned that Warner Brothers and MGM have acquired the film rights for The Sun is Also a Star, and that Tracy Oliver is adapting it for the big screen, which is so cool. Yes! We're not saying that her being on Book Club Appetizer made all the difference, but... (laughs) Just kidding. Major congrats to Nicola on that big news. All right, so book lovers, before we tell you about the novel we read this month, we're going to tell you a little bit about what we're snacking on over here. Our friends at Tastebook showed us how to make korovka, which are Russian cream caramels. I like the name because korovka means little cow oh. in Russian. And please excuse my accent. Oh, and these things are also insanely tasty. They're so good. Like, melt in your mouth. Amazing. And we're drinking a vodka martini called the Vesper. Cheers! Which was created not by a bartender, but by an author, spy novelist Ian Fleming, in his 1953 book Casino Royale. So while this month's book doesn't have to do with 007, the vodka is a good hint. So look for those recipes on our podcast page at readitforward.com slash podcast. So, as we say each month, to avoid any legal trouble as a result of ruining the ending of these books for you, this podcast may contain plot spoilers. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I hope that's not a real thing. Don't sue us. Don't sue us. If you haven't read the book. (laughs) Don't sue us even if you have read the book. Just (laughs) don't sue us. (laughs) So, this month's pick is Amor Tolz's A Gentleman in Moscow, which came out in September of 2016. And we picked this because Emma and I both really, really enjoyed Amor's first novel, Rules of Civility, which looks at working class and high society women in 1930s New York City. We were definitely eager to see what his next work would bring us, and we were not disappointed. A Gentleman in Moscow is about just that. Count Alexander Rostov is an educated aristocrat who, in 1922, is deemed to be unrepentant by a Bolshevik tribunal and sentenced to house arrest in Moscow. There's just one small problem. He's not living in a house. He's living in the Hotel Metropole in the center of Moscow in a grand and luxurious suite. He's waited on by the hotel staff. He enjoys fine dining in the hotel's restaurants and drinks at the bar. This is a man of great smarts and wit, and he holds himself to certain standards of class and grace. When his house arrest as an enemy of the Republic begins, most of that changes. He's moved from his beautiful suite to a room in the hotel's attic, forced to part way with much of his possessions. (laughs) Too bourgeois. (laughs) (laughs) And he takes a job in the hotel's restaurant as the head waiter. He finds his upbringing, which emphasized the art of hospitality, serves him well in this new role. He creates this entire community within the four walls of the hotel where he lives for 30 years until 1954. 
as Russian communist rule rages on outside the windows. And of course, life in the hotel ebbs and flows. The service and the standards of the restaurant fall under Bolshevik rule, much to the Count's chagrin. Like, no more fresh flowers. He's devastated. (laughs) But the Count forms the most incredible friendships and bonds with the hotel staff and guests, those higher and lower than he is on the social spectrum. For me, it was his relationship with the three young women he meets, whom he may not have encountered but for his imprisonment, that I loved so much. These girls are smart, they're complicated, they're precocious, and they change Alexander in tremendous ways. I loved reading those parts. This book was completely magical and addictive for me. Like I had a major book hangover after finishing this one. I felt like I, too, was on house arrest in the Hotel Metropole, for I inhabited this plot so fully. It felt a little bit like Wes Anderson meets communist Russia, and that was super satisfying. Meets a little princess. Uh, Yes. Banished to the attic. But minus the hard labor that the seven-year-old little girl has to endure. Definitely. Yeah. When we come back... Author Amor Tolls will sit with Abby in the studio and tell us about A Gentleman in Moscow. And, as always, whether you've listened to all of our podcast episodes or you're a first-time listener, we'd love to know what you think of our show. If you could take a minute and leave us a review or a comment on iTunes, we would really appreciate it. And now we welcome Amor Tolls, author of A Gentleman in Moscow, into the studio. Welcome to another episode of Book Club Appetizer. I'm here with Amor Tolls, author of A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility, which is one of our all-time favorite books. So thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me, Abby. So where and when did the character of the Count first come to you? Um, the, so the, the, the origins of the premise for the novel really come from the fact that I used to travel a good deal in my life as an investment professional over 20 years. I've written fiction since I was a kid, and I wrote it in high school and college and graduate school, but for 20 years I was an investment professional. I traveled a good deal for the firm, and I was arriving at my hotel in Geneva uh, to spend a week there for the eighth year in a row. And when I came into the lobby, I recognized some of the people there from the year before as if they had never left. And as I was taking the elevator upstairs, I thought, oh, you know, this is a nice hotel, but can you imagine if we actually had to live in it, spend a year, 10 years, five, you know, 20 years in it? And uh, I thought, oh, actually, that's kind of an interesting idea for a book, you know, a, a, a book about someone who's trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. And, and right away, I, I felt that if I was going to write a story like that, my protagonist should have to be in the hotel by force rather than by choice. And that made me think of Russia, uh, and where there's a history of house arrests dating back to the time of the czars. Um, and right away I knew that I wanted to set the story in the Metropole Hotel, which I had seen uh, many years before when I visited Moscow in 1998. And sort of, again, right there at the, as I had this idea, I had this notion that the person trapped in the hotel should be this 30-year-old aristocrat. Um, and you know, his character uh, developed very quickly as I sketched the outline for the story in those first few days uh, uh, of having had the notion, I I really had a very strong sense of what he would be like. Um, It's not based on anybody in real life, 
but I, I knew that I wanted him to be, in a way, an expression of a 19th century, someone raised in a 19th century style. Mm-hmm. And what I love and what we've seen Jane Austen do for for women is sort of lay out these rules of, of being a lady. And you spend an incredible amount of time and detail on what it means to be a gentleman, especially in, in 1920s and 30s Moscow. Were these societal rules sort of the thing that held up the fabric of society? And are there any modern-day equivalents to these these rules that we should adhere to? Uh, I think the best thing I could put it is that the, is the important thing to understand is, is that, uh, for me, is that if you look at the aristocrats of the 19th century, and, and the Count is, is born in 1890, so he's a living in the 20th century largely, but he's a product of, of a 19th century upbringing and a 19th century sensibility and 19th century world order, that if you look at the aristocrats of the 19th century in Europe, they had far more in common with each other across the nations of Europe than they had with their own countrymen. So if you found an aristocrat in, in Paris, in England, in uh, Austria, in Russia, uh, they were kindred spirits. where They were raised uh, with a similar education, a similar worldview. Uh, in many cases, they were related to each other. They socialized. And, and they were really uh, sort of a, share, a shared society across Europe and were radically different than 98% of the population in their own country, um, who in the case of Russia were really living as peasants right up into the 20th century. Um, the majority of the country was. Uh, so um, the so that's the first thing I'd say is sort of understanding the count is 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 in a way he's not certainly not a representative of uh, a, a mannered society that prevailed in Russia. He w- he was a representative of a mannered society that was a part of Europe uh, at, at the in the aristocratic aristocratic and sort of salons of Europe uh, at the late 19th century and in the early 20th century. Um, and I, I think the important thing for us as contemporary readers to remember about that generation or you know, that, those people uh, was that for them, manners in general or civility uh, were not really seen in the way that we see them today. We think of manners today as kind of a, as a nice thing to teach kids in kindergarten and it's sort of a nice frosting on the cake of social behavior. But for the 19th century uh, learned uh, and sophisticates, uh, the, the idea of manners and civility kind of dated back to the way the Stoics thought of those things or the Age of Enlightenment thinkers thought of those behaviors. And that was that manners was an outward expression of an inward struggle. And the struggle was the mastery over human weaknesses, the seven sins. You know, we're born with uh, greed, an, an impulse towards greed, an impulse towards gluttony, an impulse towards anger. and the Stoics and the Age Enlightenment thinkers believed that we could master these weaknesses um, through meditation and thought and consideration. And they developed manners really as a tool towards the mastery of those impulses. In a way, if you think of masters, they are just to create a little bit of a delay before you say that angry thing, that impatient thing, before you take that third helping, before you you know, try to take advantage of somebody uh, either, uh, you know, sexually or financially. You know, the manners were supposed to step in and slow you down um, before you do that crass thing. Um, and so that you could think about it 
twice and then ultimately take the higher road and not do, not pursue that impulse. And um, I, I find this sort of a fascinating thing in this, as this era of when, as they say, that polite external social behavior was absolutely tied to really questions of integrity mm-hmm. and, and personal development. And the count clearly comes from, from that era, uh, and as I say, which, which you could have found throughout Europe. Um, and, and I'm kind of interested, in, he's, he's going in, he's leaving the 19th century and, and entering this, uh, uh, this 20th century world of the post-revolutionary era in Russia where all kinds of values are being turned upside down. Uh, and just in some cases with very uh, good, for very good reasons. You know, the, the uh, free revolutionary Russia, having 95% of the population illiterate and having only a small minority of the population owning the land, that wasn't a, a sustainable or positive way to have a nation, certainly not in the 20th century. Um, so so the, the Bolsheviks were trying to achieve certain things that we would view as, as good ideals. Um, but their methodologies were very often to take uh, sort of the roughest, uh, fastest, most impatient uh, approach and to idealize uh, certain behaviors that lacked all forms of civility. They, they kind of prized... You know, they prize that person who uh, could brush aside simple politeness and say the thing is that, you know, get to the heart of the of the matter and, and execute uh, a, an, an action very quickly and without sentimentality. And, you know, they, they really prized that um, that sort of behavior and and so specifically swept civility off the surface of the table in pursuit of that ideal. And so that's where the count finds himself. He's someone who's raised in this. So genteel notion um, where it's really bound to integrity. He's facing uh, a, a change in his nation where this sort of rougher, uh, more urgent behavior is being pursued, and uh, and he has to figure out how to navigate that. A Gentleman in Moscow takes place over 30 years, and it but the bulk of the story is set within the four walls of the Metropole Hotel. So what about those two things, the long span of time and the unchanging setting were both limiting and freeing to you in your writing. Yeah, I, I, and I think you, you put it well. Uh, you know, I, first of all, I'd say that that when when I finished Rules of Civility and, and Viking Penguin was nice enough to you know say they wanted to buy my publish my next book, um, whatever it was, I, I was thinking considering a series of different ideas of what to write next and. And I honed in on Gentleman Moscow and, and decided to do that. And, and it was only really as I was finishing the first draft that it, it occurred to me that, that the attraction of that project to me was partly because it was so different than Rules of Civility. I mean, Rules of Civility, for those of you who read it, remember, the, <coughs> excuse me, the whole book basically takes place in 1938. It begins on New Year's Eve. It ends on New Year's Eve that year. Almost all the characters in the book are 25-year-olds who are interacting with each other in Manhattan and sort of about to begin the process of sort of uh, becoming adults. The main character, Katie, is about to start climbing the social and professional ladder of Manhattan. Um, And so it really is this year in the life of of these 25-year-old characters with the sort of the run of New York City uh, before them and going from, you know, the wealthy to the run-down environments, you know, back and forth. And um, so John Moscow is, is radically different from Rules in almost every respect there, in that where Rules is about a young woman who's about to climb the social ladder, economic, an economic ladder, um, 
gentleman in Moscow is a 30-year-old man who's about who's immediately lost his social standing and his wealth and is about to spend 30 years uh, in a lower tier of society. Um, you know, obviously, you have one as a younger woman, one as an older man. Um, you know, but a big difference too is uh, is the span of time. You know, as I say, rules of civility is a year. This is 30 years, um, and where. Rules of Civility really is about the lives of this year in the life of 25-year-olds. A Gentleman in Moscow really is about generational relationships, uh, the influence of you know, the two young children on the count, the memories of his grandmother, of his, of the, his godfather, the Grand Duke. You know, the, these generational relationships are extremely important to the body of the story. And so I think as an artist, when you're starting a new project, consciously or unconsciously, you are interested in challenging yourself, taking on a new task, uh, uh, you know, pursuing some new aspects of craft. And certainly the expansion of time was one of the biggest of those incremental challenges. Um, to tell a story in one year is, is a much more, uh, it's much more easy, it's not easy, but it, it's, it is a, uh, a task that is easier to get your hands around than talking about the evolution of a group of people over a 30-year time frame and the evolution of a country. And so that certainly attracted me in terms of the project and is a, is a, is a challenge uh, uh, and that I hope you know, the book lives up to. Um, confining the story in the space of the hotel in a way is, makes my life a little easier. You know, I, I hate to admit that. It's like a magician revealing his tricks because the, for many, I think they'd assume, oh, my God, it's, you know, that's a challenge. How do I, and it is a challenge, for me to make a book that is engaging for the reader and interesting for the reader while trapping the reader and the protagonist in this single building, um, that, that creates certain challenges, but it brings a certain advantage to me, which is that if I can make that single building vivid to you, um, I, can, I can get you to, to feel like you are experiencing the evolution of that 30 years in a, in a very close fashion which in a way would be much more difficult if I suddenly let the count loose across the city of Moscow and I, I had to make you feel like you could picture where you were decade by decade as the city itself evolved. You know, and that, that would pose a very different kind of challenge and would, and would be a, a very different sort of book. Um, I, I kind of like to think that the, the trapping of the count and the reader in the hotel is, is, is a constraint that's very productive, as I was just saying, and it's, it's not... It's far from unique in literature, you know, in a way, uh, I'm not going to compare myself to Herman Melville, who's a great hero of mine, but, but Moby Dick is set up like this. We, very early in the pages of Moby Dick, we go with Ishmael onto the Pequod with this small band of, of whalers, and we, ne we, don't, we don't get off until literally like the last three pages. Um, and so Melville has trapped his protagonist and the reader <coughs> in this small space with a small group of people and the challenge therefore for him is in, the, in a way it's an exciting challenge how do you bring the world through the boat and that, that's the same challenge for me how do I bring the world into the hotel thank you so much for being here and talking with us today Amber. my pleasure this has been a, a great pleasure it's nice to speak with you Abby thank you thank you and now a selection from the audiobook version of A Gentleman in Moscow at half-past six on the 21st of June, 1922, when Count Alexander Ilyich Rostov was escorted through the gates of the Kremlin onto Red Square, it was glorious and cool. Drawing his shoulders back without breaking stride, the Count inhaled the air like one fresh from a swim. 
The sky was the very blue that the cupolas of St. Basil's had been painted for. Their pinks, greens, and golds shimmered as if it were the sole purpose of a religion to cheer its divinity. Even the Bolshevik girls conversing before the windows of the State Department store seemed dressed to celebrate the last days of spring. Hello, my good man, the Count called to Fyodor at the edge of the square. I see the blackberries have come in early this year. Giving the startled fruit seller no time to reply, the Count walked briskly on, his waxed moustaches spread like the wings of a gull. Passing through Resurrection Gate, he turned his back on the lilacs of the Alexander Gardens and proceeded toward Theatre Square, where the Hotel Metropole stood in all its glory. When he reached the threshold, the Count gave a wink to Pavel, the afternoon doorman, and turned with a hand outstretched to the two soldiers trailing behind him. Thank you, gentlemen, for delivering me safely. I shall no longer be in need of your assistance. Those strapping lads, both of the soldiers had to look up from under their caps to return the Count's gaze. For like ten generations of Rostov men, the Count stood an easy six foot three. On you go, said the more thuggish of the two, his hand on the butt of his rifle. We are to see you to your rooms. In the lobby, the Count gave a wide wave with which to simultaneously greet the unflappable Arcadi, who was manning the front desk, and sweet Valentina, who was dusting a statuette. Though the Count had greeted them in this manner a hundred times before, both responded with a wide-eyed stare. It was the sort of reception one might have expected when arriving for a dinner party, having forgotten to don one's pants. Passing the young girl with the penchant for yellow who was reading a magazine in her favourite lobby chair, the Count came to an abrupt stop before the potted palms in order to address his escort. The lift or the stairs, gentlemen? The soldiers looked from one another to the Count and back again, apparently unable to make up their minds. How is a soldier expected to prevail on the field of battle? the Count wondered if he cannot be decisive about ascending to an upper floor. The stairs, he determined on their behalf, then vaulted the steps two at a time, as had been his habit since the academy. On the third floor, the Count walked down the red-carpeted hallway toward his suite, an interconnected bedroom, bath, dining room, and grand salon with eight-foot windows overlooking the lindens of Theatre Square. And there the rudeness of the day awaited. For before the flung-open doors of his rooms stood a captain of the guards with Pasha and Petya, the hotel's bellhops. The two young men met the Count's gaze with looks of embarrassment, having clearly been conscripted into some duty they found distasteful. The Count addressed the officer. What is the meaning of this, Captain? The Captain who seemed mildly surprised by the question, had the good training to maintain the evenness of his effect. I am here to show you to your quarters. These are my quarters. Betraying the slightest suggestion of a smile, the captain replied, No longer, I'm afraid. Leaving Pasha and Petya behind, the captain led the count and his escort to a utility stair 
hidden behind an inconspicuous door in the core of the hotel. The ill-lit ascent turned a sharp corner every five steps in the manner of a belfry. Up they wound three flights to where a door opened on a narrow corridor, servicing a bathroom and six bedrooms, reminiscent of monastic cells. This attic was originally built to house the butlers and ladies' maids of the Metropole's guests, but when the practice of travelling with servants fell out of fashion, the unused rooms had been claimed by the caprices of casual urgency. Thenceforth warehousing scraps of lumber, broken furniture, and other assorted debris. Earlier that day, the room closet to the stairwell had been cleared of all but an iron-cast bed, a three-legged bureau, and a decade of dust. In the corner near the door was a small closet, rather like a telephone box, that had been dropped in the room as an afterthought. Reflecting the pitch of the roof, the ceiling sloped at a gradual incline as it moved away from the door such that at the room's outer wall the only place where the Count could stand to his full height was where a dormer accommodated a window the size of a chessboard. As the two guards looked on smugly from the hall, the good captain explained that he had summoned the bellhops to help the Count move what few belongings his new quarters would accommodate. And the rest? Becomes the property of the people. So this is their game thought the Count. Very well. Back down the belfry he skipped as the guards hurried behind him, their rifles clacking against the wall. On the third floor he marched along the hallway and into his suite, where the two bellhops looked up with woeful expressions. It's all right, fellows, the Count assured, and then began pointing. This, that, those, all the books... questions on our site in addition to a link to the awesome Spotify playlist that we put together to accompany Amar's book. The Tchaikovsky will put you in exactly the right reading mood. And if you liked A Gentleman in Moscow and want to read more books like it, the Read It Forward team has suggested a few recommendations on readitforward.com podcast. We're producing monthly episodes centered on fantastic books we think you should read with your book club or alone. So when you need something new to read, come see what we've been reading recently. And as always, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Read It Forward and tweet about books with us. Happy reading and cheers! cheers.